You're listening to Drifter Sympathy on Feral Audio. Go to feralaudio.com and click Shop Amazon to shop through their Amazon portal. Proceeds support this and other Feral Audio podcasts. I was trying to think of why I got into Narcissus and Goldman, the book by Herman Hess, which you haven't read, right? Right. have not read. When me and Duncan went to India, we flew in and out of Sri Lanka. So we ended up living in Sri Lanka for a little while at a hotel called the Happy Banana. <laughs> These memories are all super buried, so they just come out of nowhere, but... um we're living at this hotel called the Happy Banana on the beach in Unawatuna, Sri Lanka. A block away, Arthur C. Clarke had a harem for Sri Lankan little boys because he, you know, he wrote 2001. Okay. And then moved to Sri Lanka where he couldn't be persecuted for fucking little boys. I didn't hang out with uh, Arthur C. Clarke, but we were out on... For the, the record, Emil <laughs> did not hang out with Arthur C. Clarke. <laughs> but so we're sitting out on the beach, and me and Duncan had come to a juncture of our relationship where we'd been traveling in India for like almost three months, and we were just on each other's nerves and, and about to explode, and we were arguing about like a koan about two monks sitting on a hillside <laughs> and um this is like so odd and nerdy but we we're like we we're arguing about this koan it was something to the effect of like one monk asks the other monk are you happy and the, and the one monk says back to the other monk i'm incredibly happy and the other monk says i don't believe you and so i was trying to explain that the monk that doubts the other monk's happiness is himself unhappy by definition and doesn't have the perspective to understand the quality of happiness, what it is, why it is. And in the middle of trying to explain this koan, he just started laughing at me and like started writing in his diary about you? Yeah, like, we had given up on each other or something in this moment. He expressed to me in some subtle way that he wasn't going to listen to me anymore. And then in turn, my sense of trust with him just snapped. Like, I was like, I'm never going to trust this person again in this moment. And we're sitting out on the beach in a bar in Sri Lanka, and I just picked up this glass table it had all these plates and, and glasses on it and just flipped the whole thing over and everything broke uh, in the middle of the bar and people looked at me kind of like um, in a strange way they didn't think it was that outrageous like they, they seemed to like understand like sometimes that happens okay <laughs> <laughs> and uh from that point on, our relationship really suffered like a blow that we had to get over. 
But in telling that story, I'm trying to revisit why I was so into this book, Narcissus and Goldman, which I'm not, I'm not advertising for because I could see someone picking it up and finding it incredibly boring. But it was the idea that as two best friends grow and kind of orbit away from each other and orbit back there was something of like a perfect allegory in it like a way to tell a story that Herman Hess was doing that diagrammed the nature of destiny and diagrammed the nature of how you are you and like how how the molecular makeup of you as a unique person unfolds especially in the situation where the quintessential aspect of these two monks essentially is like they're searching they're looking for something a higher purpose basically like buddha getting out of the castle so it's a good diving board it's a good jumping off point for talking about the spiritual life and 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 looking for a reason to exist and so as me and duncan were kind of weaving around each other and discovering our own like private religions and then kind of shattering and insulting the other persons. Um, I think Narcissus and Goldman was like a touchstone for me. Inadvertently, that, that helps me ground the podcast. And that helps me ground the story and, and understand how to potentially tell it. What the nature of the guru is. Why the guru is important. Basically, Duncan's like a planetary orbit, you know. And, and I'm crashing into his and... An orbit sort of conforms to another one depending on the power of the gravity at that time of their life. There is something, Terrence, that a lot of people uh, probably are not comfortable with, and that is somebody who, in his lifetime, has ingested as much LSD, um, this uh, uh, new uh, uh, drug of yours, uh, DMT, and God knows what else, probably a lot, uh, is not supposed to sound as articulate and uh, as literate and as well-preserved mentally as you do. This is literally like the sound that I imagine just like happens in your head. <laughs> Sometime around 97 or, or 8, Duncan had the first CD burner that they had issued. He got me into computers again. He, he was like helping me burn my first CDs, moving away from tapes. And I was like working on stuff for school. Like I was trying to basically turn in my early records as like projects okay to try to get some better grades going which didn't work out and uh i got like a d in songwriting or something really because i wouldn't repeat things and i wouldn't like name the title the obvious thing and he's like you're not good at this so by the time i started issuing records i was like had so much material i would throw like these 10 minute secret tracks on the early records and this is the secret track for 
a home recorded album called Enter the Uninhabitable when I was like really, really, really poor. I didn't have enough money to get the record mastered or anything. And this guy released it in Portland and put all thousand copies in his closet after telling me he was going to distribute it. And it just sat in his closet. Why was, why would you do that? Financially, that seems like what would be the point. (laughs) You're like describing my career. Yeah. Well, I was like, I'm going to spend all this money to press this record and get it made. And then I'm just going to put it in my closet. At the time, I was very, very, very depressed, uh, kind of immobilized, and it probably broke my heart that it never actually came out. But in the grand scheme of things, I think it's kind of cool to have records that are hard to find. Fuck everybody, fuck everybody, fuck everybody, fuck everybody, fuck everybody, fuck everybody, fuck everybody. This takes me back to your sweet friend, Ron. So in 1995, things were like totally falling apart. I think we were entering the summer and I just got back from Boston and I was working back at the family restaurant with Ron and... I had two different best friends from when I was growing up that we basically all started taking acid and they went off the rails and came down with some schizophrenic symptoms. I didn't know what to do because I was too young to deal with it and I thought I was insane. The ship righted itself for me just barely in time so that I was able to function whereas these guys fell off the grid completely and had to be hospitalized. I'm 16, and I'm tripping with this childhood friend of mine, and he's sitting on this little chair from, like, elementary school, and he's uh, he's leaning back on this chair balancing. And we'd always teased this kid because he was a little unusual. In elementary school, he just... He was kind of a target or something. Okay. And I had taken two hits as far as I remember, and he'd taken one, and we had accidentally gotten some stuff that was extremely powerful. It wasn't normal. It was, uh, it seemed like it was literally triple dipped or something. They always say that, but this actually was. And so, I don't know, something in my, in my instinct just like kicked the edge of his chair. I kind of like nudged the edge of his chair, and he, uh, he fell backwards and like hit the ground. It was very it was a very small chair. So it wasn't like dangerous or anything. But he when he hit the ground, he kinda went into this daze. And we were we hadn't dosed but maybe twenty minutes earlier. So we weren't quite out there yet. But when he hit the ground, he just kind of dissolved psychologically into a different person and i'd never seen this before when you're tripping though you trust the universe and you 
You trust where it's taking you. But you can't trust other people's ability to be as resilient as you. So when he hits the ground, for the next hour, he speaks in a British accent. Like, cohesively and consistently, which was really odd. But then by the time he sat up, half of his body sort of shut down like a computer, like like split down the center. His eyes, his mouth, everything like slumped down and just stopped functioning. And then the other half was like talking to me and was like, trying to explain how it felt and how odd it was and it was a terrible feeling that sounds like that would be terrifying if you weren't on acid Jesus. but I would say like going through that that I can't even imagine well there is a thing I remember in college there was a girl that sang opera really loud across from my dorm and I think she was pretty hated she would just out her window practice her scales and stuff. Okay. And I remember she came down with a thing where like half of her face basically went to sleep, you know? Right. Right. I know that it's some sort of, yeah, I think I know someone that has that too. Really? I think he's okay now. Yeah. A friend of mine. Neurological, you think? Yeah, because he was posting about it. Is this guy in a band? It's guy I know. And yeah, he was posting about it a lot on Facebook and then he was kind of explaining it. I mean, I was looking at his body, and and straight down the center, half of it was... Uh, was it also, like, his arm and leg, or was it just yeah, his... Fi- yeah, okay. yeah, it was like it was like it went into hibernation. And it was really terrifying. I felt bad for him, and I couldn't do anything. And I got up, and you know when you stand up really fast after you don't realize how fucked up you are? Yeah. And I, like, walked into the next room, and the way time was moving all of a sudden, I was like, holy shit, I am really, really high. And I remember spinning around the corner into my mom's kitchen and standing at the sink for a second and being like, oh, no, it's, like, inside me now. Like, I can feel half of my body trying to split away and attack the other side of my body. And I just fought the feeling off uh, as much as I could by distracting myself and going to check on my buddy. It was kind of an unfortunate circumstance. I, I don't remember that situation resolving very well. I think my girlfriend came over and we just sat with him and everything ended up seeming okay I started to hear rumors he was like taking more acid a little more regularly I know we did it again over by the family restaurant the next week I remember this came back to me the other day Ron calls me up and he's like I gotta talk to you about your your friend your childhood friend he came by the family restaurant and he had rape pamphlets with him. He wanted to talk to me outside, and I had to go outside of the family restaurant and I had to stand with him as he basically, in so many words, tried to explain to me that maybe I had tried to rape him. And 
<laughs> he handed me these pamphlets, and it was all very confusing, and he, then he went on his way. It may have been in college later, but I heard that there's a correlation between schizophrenia and homophobia. And while that may sound a little bit far-fetched, I did actually experience that once in the homeless shelter I worked at for 12 years. One morning I came in, super hungover, 7.30 in the morning. I noticed this one guy, as I walked in the door, this one guy immediately was hovering around me and staring at me. I had no idea what he was going through, and I think I said, Hey, man, are you okay? And he grumbled something like, I'm not going to join your group. He ended up attacking me with a broom, like physically, trying to beat me. And he told me in so many words that he had heard me under my breath say that I was part of the homosexual uh, conspiracy to keep him unemployed. In other words, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to right. I understand. unfold some grand psychological theory, but somewhere in the folds of schizophrenia, I think we can all understand that there's a lot of paranoia. Absolutely. And conspiracy. Your brain is not, um, it's not able to navigate the playing field, and so it, it writes a script for you that you can understand about how you're being held down and oppressed by some obscure group. Right. Some, some way that you can explain the voices in your head or what, whatever's trying to defeat you. Right. Well, it's also a way of sort of, like, deflecting personal responsibility. I suppose in a very primitive, strange way. My mom got a call from his mother, and basically his mother confronted my mom about me hanging out with Ron too much. So my childhood friend's mom is now very concerned that I'm hanging out with an older gay man. So my mom made some comment about how it seems kind of like his mom is, is losing it in the same way he is, and they, they've started to come together they seemed to be suffering from the same symptoms all of a sudden. They were both always very eccentric, but they were sweet, humble people. And all of a sudden, we're taking acid, and he is not making a lot of sense. Uh, he went off to college and claimed he saw a guy blow his brains out through a window one day. He started to report things that didn't quite seem real. And he ended up weighing three times his body weight on lithium bagging groceries down the street from my mom's house and, and not remembering anything about who he was. I mean, he became that local casualty. And at some point, as he was on that path, I was just like in a bad way hanging out with literally these these local criminals and and we were at a bar and we were drunk and one of my criminal friends got in a physical fight with another one of my criminal friends and they started punching each other and the fight this was pretty irregular I wasn't like surrounded by violence but the fight spilled out into the street and we were 
going down Franklin Street as one of my friends was punching the other in the face. Two friends from totally different eras of my life. And I'm just laughing, drunk, kind of stumbling behind them, trying to kind of calm them down. And in the middle of this violent procession, I look up and I can see we're heading right towards my acid casualty friend from my childhood. And he just happens to be there on the sidewalk. And I'm kind of wasted and in an awkward position. And I see him and I grab him by the shoulders and I'm like, hey, man, you know, without thinking, I say, dude, these guys must be tripping. <laughs> and as far as I remember, that's all I said. And I was trying to be funny to bring some levity to the situation with these guys punching each other. And now I accidentally bump into my childhood friend. And I don't know if he's right in the head at all. I grab by his shoulders, trying to be friendly, you know, make a joke out of everything. So I don't think I see him for months. My mom said, there's a really strange message on our answering machine. Hey, this is Kathy. I guess by now you must have reached menopause, which means you have no sex at this point. And um, I'd like you to leave a message for Emil. Yeah. So now, you know, maybe the rape pamphlets make more sense looking back. It seems like you left something out of the story about what you said to him. That's what it looks like. <laughs> but I think I get the sense something was going horribly wrong in his mind, in his life. And I, I shudder to think what his mom was going through trying to figure out what was wrong with him because she probably didn't want to admit he was past repair. Right, right. It sounds to me like he tried to explain something that was going wrong within him and somehow used me as a character in his explanation and I was a pretty callous kid at the time because I was just sort of like on my own highway of self-destruction. But uh, I definitely remember stumbling down the street with this fight and grabbing him by the shoulders and saying, man, these guys must be tripping. And then realizing, oh, this is a terrible thing to reference. I'm referencing LSD to a guy who... I don't know if he's recovered from our experiences. And maybe in the very back of my head, I remembered the rape pamphlet thing. I don't even know. I mean, none of this stuff made sense to me. It was all just a jigsaw puzzle that was right pieces on the ground. Looking back now, we can hear that message and we can kind of see what 
they thought was going on, some sort of homosexual conspiracy that I was part of with Ron and... Or you could be, like, a scapegoat for why things... <laughs> I do have some responsibility in the LSD part of it, you know? I mean, I... They never accused me of that. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if that's necessarily true. Like, it's not like you dosed him when he didn't know about it or you oh, like, no. forced him to do it. So it's like... But it is interesting with that stuff where it's like, why does that happen to some people and not other people? Like, could that, could that have been you? Well, that's what I thought. I was like, this might as well be me. We're all, like, completely melting away and destroying ourselves here. It was a terrible terrible summer and yet i don't know how to describe this but it was the best time of my life <laughs> so i remember the summer starting and i and i would cook at the family restaurant with my friend mark and i remember us looking at each other and being like this summer is going to be the summer this is going to be the greatest time of our life and we knew it and i'd convinced my mom i was not mentally prepared to go to college i i couldn't do it so i i Got my year to be a fucking total loser, and that's what I wanted. The summer kicked off, and it was just technically disaster after disaster. I was in the music loft one day, which was our local music store, I basically grew up in this place asking questions about Neil Peart. And one day the new guru comes in, who I've never given a name on this podcast, but I call him my best friend. This is the guy that I go to Boston to live with that okay. is basically like this lo-fi pioneer. He comes in Music Loft, and of course I recognize him, and he's with this other kid who's like this local college kid, and... um He's buying strings for his acoustic guitar so he can play, like, stoned Indigo Girl song around the campfire. And I see the new guru come up to the desk, and, he, you know, rather than asking questions or buying guitar strings, he's just, like, beating his chest, like, hip-hop style. I mean, like, in, a, in another world. And he just starts rapping Joni Mitchell to the guy behind the counter. He's like, hey, you know this one? And he, like, raps... Uh, he was sitting in the lounge of the Empire Hotel. He was drinking for diversion. He was thinking for himself. Blue money riding on the maple leaves. Along comes a lady in lacy sleeves. She says, Let me sit down, you know, drinking alone. It's a shame, it's a shame, it's a tragedy. Look at those jokers who do that damn hockey game. And I'm like, that's the dude. That's the motherfucking dude. And so I memorize what his friend looks like, because I'm like, this guy must have some fucking interesting friends. And his friend becomes my best friend, and he's this college kid going to UNC Chapel Hill. I'm still in high school. And I just end up hanging at his house all the time. So I get this new group of friends that are college kids, which was like this whole new world. Basically, we turn their house, this, like, three-story party complex, we just turn it into a fucking animal house. And I'm, like, a terrible influence, because I'm just ready 
to implode at any moment. I just want to like get as wasted as possible and do whatever is on hand. Right. The summer is kind of ramping up and one night we're bored. It's like a stupid fucking Tuesday night and one of the kids in the house who's like 21 and I'm still like 16 or 17 and he he just starts firing off bottle rockets in the living room like at me and we're we're just bored. We're just like depressed and, and there's nothing going on. And at one point he's up in the stairwell and he like shoots a bottle rocket down off the stairs and it like buries itself in the couch and just like makes a muted like pop. And we kind of mildly laugh. And I remember distinctly feeling like a little bit ill that night. And I was just like, let's get out of here. The whole place is full of fucking bottle rocket smoke now. This is retarded. You know, I don't want to get cancer. So we get in my car and we drive to my mom's and for the first time ever, he ends up staying over at my mom's house and we wake up in the morning, hung over and go shoot basketball at Carver Elementary where Paulo, Archer's Loaf, all these, all these bands would go play basketball in the morning. And his girlfriend comes running up to the basketball court and she's like holding her heart and she's like, Oh my God, you're alive. And, and we're like, what the fuck are you talking about? She's like, you guys burned down the whole house last night. <laughs> and we're just like, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, we're laughing basically in her face. And she's like, well, at least come look at it with me. So we're like, Really, we gotta go with you right now. So we get in the car, and the whole drive, we're just like cracking up. I think it's like the final curve towards the house where we're taking, we're like, turn to each other and like, what if it is burned down? You know? And we turn the corner, we're like, oh wow. You know, I have never done this before. I just burned down a three story house. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, people will come up to me sometimes and be like, you did it. You did it. And uh, I even met a guy the other day. He was like, I was going to move into that house the next weekend before you burned it down. And I'm like, you know what? A lot of people want to talk to me about this house, but like, I didn't do it. I was there. I've always said this. I'm not hiding anything. I was there. Right. But I didn't burn it down. I did want to leave because there was smoke everywhere that seems like a very normal reaction i mean it looks fucking ridiculous after the house is burned down i don't know if you've ever been inside a a house that's burned down but jesus christ this place looked like hellraiser you know when like a log is burnt to a crisp to the point where it's like this black flaky shiny like mica looking substance the entire house looked like that you could walk through it and it would just kind of crackle as you walked through and guitars were burnt to the the wall it was easter weekend so everybody had gone home to visit their family so no one was hurt so they all returned from easter weekend <laughs> To see their rooms completely. 
I, I never really processed how it all felt because I was just so fucking worried, you know, about what I was going to do with my life. So uh, anyway, we're like walking through this this burned down huge house and uh, we get upstairs and... So you could go up the stairs still? Yeah, I mean, the house was like... It, it was, was like intact? It, it was, was intact, just, okay. but, you know, there was all sorts of damage water damage but it was also literally fried like the the whole house had been in a fryer you know and so in the middle of the living room on the table is my backpack and the fire had just moved around it so it's like this one spot that's not (laughs) so sad one spot that's not fried to a crisp and has like its normal coloration and it's my backpack with like my Walkman and my headphones and my David Bowie CD in it and my lyric pad or something and I pick it up I'm like oh cool my backpack and I walk out (laughs) and I could I felt somebody's glare like you motherfucker you know anyway I think that was years of insurance problems for my buddy who actually lit the bottle rocket who lived there. Um, but so he, he, he took the rap. I mean, like, he no, he just avoided it for years. This, this happened to a few of my friends where they accidentally burnt down their apartment because they went to Europe and like, well, I don't want to turn off my grow lamp. <laughs> lamp falls down and burns their house down and they just run from the law for eight years until finally they owe so many thousands of dollars they have to start paying installments I'm going to have to delete all this the next weekend literally I'm at the same spot downtown where I see my friend and had grabbed him by his shoulders and we had really graduated into total local ne'er-do-wells. Like, we'd graduated into being people that everybody would probably want to avoid at that point. And so we've been drinking a lot at this particular bar, this shitty fucking bar. But I was still 17, but they would let me in and drink illegally. And so I was actually already checking IDs at my other friend's bar <laughs> called Papagayo's. Uh we would drink until close and we'd go climb up on this rooftop and we'd all kind of perch over the downtown strip. And you know, you're, you're fucking 17. So like the city's kind of humming with energy and you're just looking down for your friends and we're up there. This is a week after we burned the house down. And I looked down and the same criminal friend that had been punching the one runs down under us and yells up last call at the bar let's run and go get it so i circle around and i come out by the front of the building where we sit on the roof i get out to the front of the building right where somebody has written in the concrete gg allen is god i come out i'm looking around for my friend who i just told to come with me and he's not anywhere around i look up and he's crawling backwards down the front of the building. Same guy who burnt the house down a week later. 
And I'm like, Dave, what are you doing? And, he, and he's like, no problem, I'll be right there. And before I can even think of anything, he just falls. Spins in the air a little halfway and hits the concrete right in front of me. Spits out his teeth. And I hear his bones break. We're talking about like his hip and his fucking legs and his arms and shit. And there's a couple, you know, two and a half story fall or something. And in, in the worst... Maybe the worst decision of my life. He tells me to take him home and put him in bed. Not go to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. And so I picked up his body in its various pieces and helped carry him upstairs and put him in bed. And he was like, thanks. I don't know what level of pain he was in. He could, I'm sure he couldn't even express it. I drove over to my friend's house, basically this drug house that I'll return to in this story. And I guess I, I was like, man, the craziest thing happened tonight. And they were like, wait, where is Dave? And there were, you know, three-dimensional thinking, breathing people, which I was not you at mean, that point. where is your friend? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, he's in bed. And they were like, one of many, many, many times they looked at me and shook their head and was like, you are a fucking idiot. And they fired up their car and we went to go get him and take him to the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) This guy's had a really bad couple of weeks. Yeah. Oh, wow. There's no way to tell that story in a way that's not grueling and humiliating. But I guess this is the point. And so... I think since we're reaching the end of our time here, I will finish with this. Okay. A couple weeks later, me and my girlfriend are about to go to bed. It's the middle of the night. It's probably like five in the morning. And we hear these voices outside of our house. And she's a little bit scared. And I'm like, uh, don't worry about it. It's probably nothing. In the morning, my other childhood friend who had had some problems with LSD was on my porch. And he'd slept on my porch. When we were little, he was very similar to the other friend. In that he was exhibiting really strange behavior. But we didn't identify it as that strange. Like in first grade, like... If we were all playing video games at my house, he might 
stand up and start kind of screaming as he was playing and like acting as though he was really like in the game or something. Just strange things. Like his family was just clearly they had been to the dark side of the hippie movement and taken too much acid themselves. So I had heard he'd been taking acid and had gone off and one day my hardcore band was practicing and I see this freak like run up to the door of my mom's house and it's him and he's got like massive dreads and like kind of early raver clothes on. I'm just like, what's going on? I mean, he looked insane. So one night he ends up in that summer, he ends up sleeping on my porch and he had this other guy with him. Now me and my girlfriend wake up, my mom's not around. Needless to say, summertime, everything's just chaos and we're just hell bent on finding out what to do that night. So at some point we, everybody heads down to the basketball court and my childhood friend with the, with the dreads, who's, who's also become an acid casualty, gets really upset during the day. And I don't know him that well anymore, but I know he is a little disturbed. And he got really mad at me for something that didn't have anything to do with me at the basketball court and ran off. And it was, a, it was about a girl, and she just wasn't doing what he wanted her to do. I get back home and he has gotten inside my car and used a black massive sharpie and like written all sorts of fucking crazy profanities all over my mom's car that she's given me. Destroyed the car. Like it says on (laughs) above the windshield, suck the Lord's purple cock or something. It's my mom's car. It's, It's ruined. And it's one of those things where my friends are like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? And I'm just like, it's okay. No. I mean, I I, I understand where he's coming from. He's lost his mind. I feel terrible for him. He's run off. He's probably in a schizophrenic bout of shame now. He'd been going off the rails for a while he would lie down in the middle of the street, wait for a car to run over him, and the cops would find him. And he couldn't explain himself, so he'd call my mom in the middle of the night. And so we go through the rest of the day in confusion, and this new guy that he's had with him on the porch plays off the situation into my hands. So this random guy who I've never met all of a sudden is hanging out with me and I'm really depressed because of what's happened to the car and my friend. And his name is Devin Ray Rambo. You can Google him. Oh, I will. So the story was that they'd slept on my porch because they'd met following the dead together and they'd ended up in Chapel Hill and were fast friends and were going on to the next dead show. Later on, it came out that he had just met him at the gas station a block from my house. And there's like so many lies involved in how this guy came into my orbit. But I didn't know this at the time. I was just depressed and wanted to go have a drink. So we go off to this bar and he plays off it perfectly. He's like, man, what an asshole. What a bad friend. I can't believe you did that to your car. I'm like, yeah. 
and we sit there and drink a few pitchers of beer. At some point, I don't really realize how drunk I am. And I'm like, you want to just go back to my girlfriend's house? We can just go sleep there because it's nearby. So I'm just, I've just invited a person I don't know at all that he met at a gas station that's supposedly following the dead to my girlfriend's house. So we get to my girlfriend's house and me and my girlfriend get in one of the worst fights we've ever been in. And it gets really bad. And at some point, I lock her and him out of the building. (laughs) Oh my god, dude, this is incredible. It was bad. I mean, I'm 17, so I have no sense of, like, boundaries, really. Just everything is a mess. Right. And I'm looking out the window at them, locked out of the house. And in some horrible, demented, jealous, paranoid scheme, I'm like, you guys can only come in if you kiss first. Like some some crazy, terrible way to drive myself into even more of a rage or something. I don't know what the fuck was wrong with me. Something was horribly, horribly wrong. (sighs) Needless to say, by the time they come in, the fight is still spiraling out of control. And at some point, the guy tries to hold me down on the couch. In my drunken mess, my ego flares up and I'm like, you can't hold me down. What are you trying to hold me down for? I like push him away and get up. And as I'm walking towards my girlfriend, he picks up a classical guitar. And breaks the entire thing over my head. Breaking my skull open. So that you can probably see my brain. And then breaks the guitar over my back. Over and over. Like cutting into my back. He's trying to knock me out. But I just keep walking towards my girlfriend. Into the bathroom. She's like, oh my god, let me see your head. And she's like, this is really, really bad. We have to go to the hospital. And I'm so ashamed and so confused. I'm supposed to be knocked out. I remember going and getting in my car that my friend had drawn all in. And turning it on and chasing this guy through the woods, trying to run him over with my head bleeding down my back. And I basically drove through the woods to the point that the entire alignment and axles of my car became completely unhinged. So I'm almost driving sideways, and the car is groaning like a banshee in the night because it's barely driving, and I'm trying to kill him, screaming at him. And at some point he gets away into the woods and only a few blocks away is this criminal's house that I go to to get fucked up. So I just pedal to the metal with this fucking car screaming this ghastly sound. 
down the street, barely make it, and just kind of slide into his yard and and skid out into his yard right in front of his stairway. He's on the porch, and I run up, and I say, look at my head, look at my head. And he happens to just be sitting there with this homeless dude that's, like, drunk, too. And so they look at my head. I'm like, I need to go to the hospital. Homeless dude puts his shirt on my head to stop some of the bleeding. And my friend said, who did this to you? And I said, it's this guy, Devin Ray Rambo, down the street, my girlfriend's house. And he grabbed a machete and he went running with no shoes or socks in his like underwear down the street, high speed for over a mile. And I ran after him holding my head with the shirt on my wound. And as we come up, we sprint the whole way. As we come up to my girlfriend's house, he's standing out front walking with her in the dark. And I can hear him saying something like, I don't know what happened. I just, he elbowed me and I like, I just, I was trying to protect you. I don't even know what I'm feeling at the time. Everything's just chaos. And my, my criminal friend, I don't know how else to describe him, swiftly charges at the guy with the machete above his head. And he says, I'm going to fucking kill you. And the guy sprints into the night. Like, he just sprints off into the forest. And then I believe someone took me to the hospital. The cops show up at the hospital to arrest me because they had found this guy barefoot and crying in the forest. He was knocking on people's doors, basically being like, these guys are coming for me. They're trying to kill me. So the cops come to arrest me, and I'm in the operating room about to get 17 staples plunged into my skull to to keep it together. And I look at the cops, I'm like, I think you got the wrong person, man. <laughs> what did you do with this guy that you found? They said, well, he was, he was crying and he gave us an address and so we dropped him off at his friend's house. So he's like playing video games at his friend's house and I'm getting arrested right after I get 17 staples on my head. So they're just like, well, you're going to have to press charges, whatever, you know. You're going to have to take care of that tomorrow yourself or something. They realized that something had gone horribly wrong. (laughs) I got the call from my friend in Boston to move back up there. And my mom came in my room one day when I was high and she said, you have to write an essay about why you want to go to college. I found a private college for you. You're going to go to. And I knew I had fucked around for that entire year. I knew I was going to die if I just kept doing what I was doing. I had 17 stables on my head, so I knew that technically I had pretty much crossed the line. I I wasn't 
doing anything worthwhile. I wasn't going to start a band. You know, I wasn't going to do the things that I probably should have been doing at my age. So I wrote this horrible, tossed-off essay in my room about why I wanted to go to this college, and I unfortunately somehow miraculously got into the college, which is where I will meet Duncan and all these other people down the line. Was it unfortunate? Well, I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to die. Oh, right. Either way I turned, I just thought life was over for me. And I really, really did not want to go live in a town called Swananoa in the mountains of North Carolina. Somehow it symbolized death. One more bottle of wine Someone said the clock is slipping through the time One more drink before we go I've never met such of a 
I started this podcast with some understanding that there would be a therapeutic aspect to it, but I wasn't really sure in what way it would unravel itself. But this story was so brutal that in just having to listen to it, I was walking on the street listening to the very end and I just had to stop to go write an old friend and apologize for everything I'd done. So already there's been something good for me going through this stuff, thinking about almost dying and shit and getting something good out of it.